it wasn't about silencing an opinion. We found the opinion, we looked at it, and realized that the opinion was violence, that the opinion was an attempt to get people killed. And that goes beyond the domain of free speech and into the domain of, okay, we have to defend against that. You are listening to Made of Human, also known as the Mopad, a podcast hosted by Sophie Hagen, who is a Danish comedian. Mopad. Trying to find out how to do life. But it turns out nobody knows. I'm so excited about today's episode in so many ways, for so many reasons. First of all, we've got Emily Gosensky as a guest. We A Nazi hunter. A Nazi hunter. I mean, I, I, that's not her words. That's something that I found myself saying a few times. And uh, I just, it sounds... Um, it's what she does in a way. Anyways, you, you'll hear her say uh, talk about it. I feel myself being a tiny bit nervous recording this because at one point she said that uh, there were many people listening to everything she did, uh, like high up in organizations and stuff. So now I feel like maybe the Nazis will judge me for <laughs> for how I <laughs> deliver this intro and outro. Anyways, screw it. I am just so excited we have um, Emily Gosensky on. Uh, this there's such a disconnect <laughs> in my head between how cool and important and exciting and fascinating and essential she is and like the life the li- like she's in she moved she had to leave the states to move to Europe because her life was in danger because she's been outing and doxing and tracking down Nazis and so there's a disconnect between that and then just how incredibly calm and sweet and I don't know if she's shy or just down to earth or I don't know I mean I I'm I'm still a bit blown away I'm, I'm recording this only a few hours after I've, I've had the conversation with her and I'm so excited also because this conversation I never thought it would actually happen the first time we set it up uh, the microphone wasn't working the second time I I think I was late I got like the timing wrong so I thought it was an hour before after something something and then the third time my computer died after 20 minutes and now it's finally happened finally I I I kept thanking her for giving me so many chances because uh, it's very rare that I'm this useless when it comes to booking guests. And I am... I mean, can you believe it? We have we have a guest who's famous for making Nazis cry. I mean, have we ever been happier? So I will let you listen to the wonderful Emily Kosensky in a tiny, tiny bit. I don't know if I have a lot to say in a p- plugging-wise. I am... I'm so tired. I'm doing another online show soon. Uh, I'll just check on my website what I'm up to. I'm recording this a bit in advance, so honestly, I don't really know what I'm doing <laughs> at the time of you listening to this. But, but hey, why not go and take a look at my website? There might be something I've just announced that's really exciting. <laughs> I think like the the week in which I am recording this, I have like four big announcements and 
I'm building a new project and it's it's all a lot. <laughs> but also I've just really been enjoying you. I've really been enjoying you like this it's I feel after the 200th 200th episode where I got to sit and think and talk about the podcast and what it means to me and what it's done and it's just uh it's given me like a new I don't know appreciation for what this is I don't know uh, maybe I should stop saying that I'm gonna try and not be wanky because I'm always wanky on this one you know what why don't I just uh let you listen to this I have some more stuff to say after uh after the chat that I need to say afterwards but uh, I don't think you need to know much more we've got a Nazi hunter on and oh, I have so much to say. I'll say it at the end. Okay, you know what? You just uh, sit down or do whatever. You don't have to sit down. Do whatever you want to do and enjoy this chat that I had with the incredible Emily Gosensky. So for people who might not know who you are, which would be an awful shame because you're one of the coolest people ever, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure thing. Um, my name is Emily Gorsensky. I am many things. I work as a data scientist, um, but I'm also an activist and uh, somebody who studies and tracks um, modern um, white supremacy and hate movements. Um, I'm a technologist. I'm a hockey player. Um, all sorts of things. So I don't know. What is what does it mean to be something or somebody? Wow, that's big. <laughs> that's very big from the from the very beginning. Uh, I think one of the things that when I was uh, reading about you, a lot of places it said that you were a person who is known for making Nazis cry. Where does that stem from? That is true. Um, so, as a little bit of background, I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia, um, or at least I I spent. Um, 10 years living there. Um, and of course, Charlottesville was the site of the infamous neo-Nazi rally in 2017, where um, a terror attack happened and the tiki torches and all of that stuff, right? So sort of um, stuff that was seen all around the world. And one of the neo-Nazis that was there marching at the rally was a man by the name of Christopher Cantwell. And during the Tiki Torch rally, he pepper sprayed me, uh, along with several other people. Um, and, you know, he was also at the time uh, filming a documentary with uh, Vice News. Um, and so what happened was after the, the rally, you know, the um, Vice and HBO, you know, raced to put out this documentary about what had happened. They had some very dramatic footage and um, he, Chris Cantwell was featured very prominently in, in all of this and talking about how he wanted to kill more people and, you know, showing off his guns and all of these things. Well, the thing is, I knew who Chris Cantwell was and I knew that he pepper sprayed me because he posted a picture of himself pepper spraying me as his Facebook header the next morning. So I went to the police and made a decision to press charges against him. And when he found out that there was a warrant for his arrest, um, this was shortly after the Vice documentary came out with all of his bravado and his, you know, machismo and all of that. Um, so this 
news of this warrant comes out and he records himself in a hotel room somewhere in North Carolina or somewhere crying on, on this like stream because he's worried that he's got this, um, this warrant up for his arrest. And so this sort of very poor, um, poorly intentioned little video that he produced um, of himself like sobbing, not quite sobbing, but like definitely sniffling, um, earned him the nickname of the crying Nazi. Um, so he became in within the span of just a few days, he went from being this, you know, big, bold neo-Nazi to this reduced hulk of a man um, who's crying because he, you know, got caught doing violence. And so that became a sort of a worldwide uh, meme. And this happened because I was one of two people to press charges against him. So um, I've earned the reputation for making Nazis cry. And since then, I've also made several other Nazis cry for various reasons. Um, and so I guess that is just now the reputation that I have. I mean, it's it's funny that you should say he was caught doing that. Like he very much promoted himself doing the violence, didn't he? <laughs> it, you know, it baffles the mind. This was such a, a bizarre sequence of events, right? Because, you know, here he is, somebody that went on camera and talked about how he wanted to be more violent. He was trying to be more violent, um, you know, all of this stuff. And then when he acted violently, he bragged about it. You know, oh, look at all the, you know, he calls everyone communists, of course. Look at all the commies that I gassed. And then he gets caught doing it. And then he's like, oh no, there's consequences for my actions and he cries. But it didn't end there, right? Because sensible people when facing 40 years in prison as he was, would shut their mouths, but he did not know. He started, he continued recording his podcast from jail. Um, and then when he was let out on bail, oh my God. despite having literally admitted to pepper spraying me. He then sued me and my co-defendant or co-complainant rather in federal court. So there was a federal lawsuit against me for claiming that he pepper sprayed me. Now, of course, this lawsuit eventually went away. It was fine. Um, but it, I mean, it tied up a year of my life. And, and as a result of this, and as a result of his um, many, uh, uh, attempts to to silence and intimidate me. Um, I actually had to leave Charlottesville. I had to leave the country. In fact, I now live in Germany. Um, and so, you know, the the sort of end of the story, or the maybe it's not the end, but the chapter that the story is now on is that Chris Cantwell um, ple pleaded guilty to um, two counts of assault. He was let out of jail, so he didn't get the forty years in prison. He he got you know basically um, slapped on the wrist and sent back to his home, but he was banned from the state of Virginia for, for five years. Well, he didn't make it five years because now he's sitting in a New Hampshire jail awaiting federal charges where he is now facing 32 years in prison for extorting uh, and violently threatening another fellow Nazi. So he's now waiting trial or allegedly, I should say, he has not been found guilty allegedly threatening and extorting a fellow Nazi. Um, so he's awaiting trial and um, this, the saga is yet to be finished, but um, we will see what happens with, with, um, with him. But yes. Oh, wow. 
so many questions. Okay, first of all, I mean, what a mess of a man, right? But also, um, wait, so in the very beginning, did you say there was a Vice documentary made featuring him? Like, was he the, did they do, do a documentary about a Nazi? Is that what happened? Um, it was, yeah, sort of they did. Um, so they had been tracking sort of white power movements, um, or at least the, the journalist who did this. And she kind of linked up with Chris Cantwell because he was this sort of fringe figure in the um, American libertarian free state, free people movement um, that drifted into white supremacy and neo-Nazism. And they kind of followed him to see what was going on. And it was a, the, there are parts of the documentary that were very good and there are parts of that are, that are very problematic. Um, because giving a Nazi an unfiltered platform is a very dangerous thing to do. Um, ultimately, this documentary ended up winning several awards, Emmys, I believe, and, and a Peabody Award for Outstanding Journalism. Um, and it's it's still available. Anyone can go see it. It's called Charlottesville Race and Terror. I had no hand in making it, this, um, this documentary. Um, but it does provide a really interesting look into, you know, sort of, where that was in America at the time, where white supremacy, where hate was, what the alt-right meant um, when they re when they peaked in 2017. And, you know, that weekend and, and those moments are still having ripple effects that are being felt, um, not just in Charlottesville, but all throughout the United States, and in fact, all throughout the world, as we grapple with the rise of fascism and... Um, the incompetency of fascist governments to deal with real genuine crises like the, the coronavirus pandemic that's happening now. And, you know, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, was roundly and justifiably criticized for his response to what happened in Charlottesville. And I think that the, uh, the overall impact of that is not yet uh, decided. Uh, we, we, still have yet to see what, what effect this all has in, in world affairs. And um, so it's very interesting to see how, how these things all interconnect. When you said that you had to leave um, the country, that, that wasn't just, that can't just be because of the lawsuit, right? What others, you said that he tried to silence you and intimidate you. What, what sort of things would he do? Well, he, he knows and he admits To, to knowing that, um, you know, he used to run a podcast, um, a radio, radio in, in quotes, radio program um, for his Nazi listeners. Um, and that was his main source of income. And uh, he would threaten me and write about me and talk about me in his podcast, knowing very well that he had violent followers who would act out violent fantasies against me. And in one case in October of 2017, Um, somebody call, called a, uh, a swatting attempt against me. They called the police saying that there was a bomb at my house, that I was threatening my wife. Um, I wasn't even in state. I was like on vacation with some friends. My wife was out shopping when this all happened. Um, and the person who, who was responsible for this ended up recently, two or three months ago, emailing me out of the blue to apologize. And he, in this email, he admitted that part of the motivation for this was because I was taking Chris Cantwell to court. Um, and so very much this is a situation where um, Chris knew 
that uh, his followers were violent and that they would do violence against me. He very much tried to get me killed by, um, by his actions and his words. Yeah. Typical. I was about to say, I don't know if that, if that sounds a bit too soft to say, Oh, typical Nazis, but I guess it is. Uh, so how did you end up in the, that day in Charlottesville when you got pepper sprayed, what happened in your life to lead up to the point where you are being tear gassed by a Nazi? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I, I was living in Charlottesville. I owned a house there. I got married there. Um, you know, it was my community. It was um, where I settled after I finished my university uh, degree and I was working there. Um, and so when a bunch of neo-Nazis come to your, to your town and they stage what is the biggest neo-Nazi or white supremacist public rally in decades, decades, definitely since the seventies, if not, if not earlier. And I think that, you know, you have a moral obligation if you're a free thinking person to, to do something to oppose this. And, you know, I'm not a big person. I can't fight on the streets. I'm not going to, um, not very good at shouting at people, you know, but what I did have was a social media platform. And what I could do was um, go into the front lines and show what was happening, right? Because we knew that the Nazis were violent and that they were coming with the intent to do violence and that there was nothing, um, nobody was listening to us when we'd said that they were coming to do violence. And so, you know, I went out and I was there to do what I was going to do, which was to live stream what was happening um, to act completely nonviolently and just sort of bear witness to what was going on to do this in defense of, you know, our black community who's been routinely terrorized by white supremacists and the police um, to do so in defense of my community. I mean, you know, I used to take classes. I was a, uh, working on a master's degree at the university of Virginia where the Tiki torch march happened. Um, it was very much part of where I lived. And so, for me, it was just, of course, I'm going to be out there. Why wouldn't I be? So was he the first Nazi that you started tracking? Or were you already tracking Nazis at this point, trying to identify them? Um, no. So, you know, I had been trying to track several of the Nazis uh, that were organizing the rally locally. Um, Jason Kessler and, and some other folks. Um Chris Cantwell was barely on my radar. I kind of knew who he was. And I did some research on him because he was a speaker. Um, he was one of the headline speakers for the event. So he was already, he, you already knew who he was, so you didn't need to track him. Yep. But you'd already been tracking before this. Yeah, I think, you know, we sort of, at least the headline speakers kind of did some work to see, okay, who are these guys? Like, you know, what, are, what do they stand for? What are they trying to sell here? Um, I think that's the responsible thing to do. I mean, this was, you know, it's funny that they say, oh, Antifa is all about, you know, suppressing free speech and they don't want to, you know, see a, a diversity of opinions and they're, you know, it's a, a collective and they just want to silence you. It's like, no way. Like we, as a community, did a lot of research on who was coming. We went and read all of their work and looked at their websites and saw their Twitter feeds Some of us subscribe to their new newsletters, right? So it wasn't about silencing an opinion. We found the opinion, we looked at it, and realized that the opinion was violence, that the opinion was an attempt 
to get people killed. And that goes beyond the domain of free speech and into the domain of, okay, we have to defend against that. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, it's just, that's, to me, that's just part of living in, in a modern world full of um, misinformation and, and, you know, bias and impartial information. Like you have to do that work. Turns out when you actually do the work and you read what these people are saying, you're like, God, this guy's got to shut the fuck up. Do you think that's why most people don't do it? Like why most people don't actively participate in protests? And I mean, a lot of people don't even really care. Or do you think one of the reasons is that people just haven't actually read all these? Like, I mean, there's a lot of Nazis in the news, but the real like hardcore Nazis, um, Is, do you think that's the reason why so many people are not out there doing this? Um, I mean, first of all, not everyone can be out there and that needs to be recognized. I mean, people are, you know, who are disabled or who can't afford to, can't take the risk, you know, they have family to care for, or, you know, Mental maybe they're and... a doctor or a nurse or something, right. We don't want them out there on the front lines. Um, but other people, you know, the ability to stay silent and to, disagree ideologically with it um, comfortably is a privilege. And that to me is the main reason um, because the minute that you step foot out in the streets, you're giving away privilege. You're giving away the privilege of being able to um, contentedly uh, disapprove of white supremacy. You're giving away this the privilege of aloofness um, when you go out there, you put yourself at risk. And I think that that's a hard thing for people to do. It's a very hard thing to give up any sort of privilege. Um, and so I think that that's part of it. Um, I also think that, you know, if you want to interrogate white supremacy, to do so honestly requires you to explore many facets of our systems. And the process of doing so will sort of awaken you to many of the ways that our systems are deliberately built and stacked against um, anyone that is not a white cisgender abled male in our society. And so the things that give you creature comforts, you have to start being willing in this process to interrogate those things and to open yourself to the possibility that you might find that they need to be torn down. That is also a difficult thing. You know, um, why bite the hand that feeds you? And that's the grand trick, right? It's to keep us satisfied enough that we can afford nice things. You know, um, certainly I'm comfortable. I work in tech. My wife works in tech. We make a very handsome living. I live in Germany. We still have a home in America. I own all of the furniture that you see behind me, right? This is a nice, easy life. I could shut up, go about my business, and probably it would have been a lot safer for it. But to me, that also makes you complicit in that world. It makes you part of those systems that are built um, to suppress and oppress black people and trans people and queer people and women, right? And to me, being part of that, you know, silent complicity is the design of the system. And so when you choose to, when you know, and you choose to do that, then you are actively working to reinforce that system. And for me, I, I find that unconscionable. 
even as I, you know, have an uncomfortable past myself, you know, I used to be a military contractor. Like that was not the best thing for me to do. What's right? a, what, what is a military contractor? I used to be an, uh, an engineer. I worked on, on uh, military contracts. So engineering. Oh. So not quite building weapons, but, you know, I'm doing research that may or may not have possibly led to um, weapons development. Um, you know, we all have to, to take some time to look at how we fit into the systems that we live in. And I can't erase my privilege that I have. And I'm still working for corporations and um, as, we, as many of us are. Um, so we can't completely purge ourselves of it. But what we can do is to actively work to create a better world in a constructive and productive way. And to me, that's what activism is about. And so fighting Nazis is one face of a multi-sided die on combating um, hatred and bigotry in the world. But when you, I mean, I've, I've spoken to quite a lot of activists and I feel like most activists have this thing in common where their answer to why they're doing it is always, but how how could I not? Like This is just an obvious thing to do. Yet, not everyone's an activist. Do, can you look back at what what made you decide to do that instead of living comfortably? Because one thing is knowing all, because everything you said is obviously correct. One thing is knowing that, and another thing is knowing it, and then going, oh, okay, I'm going to put myself in danger to you know, do the right thing. So what, what makes you do that when most people don't? I um, was somebody that was brought up to, to stand up to bullies. Um, my grandmother taught me how to punch. Um, my dad saved the suspension slip that I got in sixth grade when I got in a fight and beat up my bully on the bus. Um, so there's a sense of standing up for yourself um, that was, you know, sort of built into who I was. And I've always envisioned myself as somebody who would stand up for what is right. Um, but my politics didn't match my intentions for a long time. And it took a long time for me to understand what is right and what is wrong. So I knew that I had this, this moral center of doing something. Um, but I didn't know what it was because I didn't know how to orient myself in the world. And I think that, you know, I'm trans and, and when I transitioned, it really took a lot of the wallpaper off the walls. And I started seeing the house for what it was. Um, and yeah, that's a very self-centered, very selfish way of going about it. But that was a big factor in um, how I came about that, you know, these realizations. And so then it made sense to me. It's like, oh, okay. Now I have something that I can really latch onto. And it wasn't just that I was experiencing oppression. Um, it was that I was starting to have peers as I was meeting trans people and being part of this community. I was starting to see how the systems that were working for me were also working against them. And here I'm thinking like, oh yeah, I mean, for me, it was easy. You know, it was difficult for me to find a gender affirming therapist, for example. I had to drive an hour and a half each way 
um, once every two weeks to find a therapist that could um, could get me, you know, what I needed and and support me. And that was a lot, you know. That's that's really, you know, a shitty situation. But I was also working a job where I could do that, and I had insurance where I could pay for that, right? And so not everyone can take off every other Wednesday or half of every other Wednesday um, to go pay to go for a therapist where you know I was paying a ten dollar copay for a two hundred dollar one hundred and fifty dollar whatever per session fee, right? And so when I see that, like how easy of a time I had, despite those difficulties, compared to some of my friends who couldn't find a therapist, whose therapist wouldn't write them the letters that they needed to get the medication that they needed, um, who didn't have insurance and so had to pay it out of pocket, who, you know, had to drive more than 90 minutes each way or who couldn't get the time off of work, right? I started seeing that like, oh man, this sucks. Like if this sucked for me, this really sucks for them. We should change that, right? And then once I could like really understand the problem from top to bottom, that's when I was like, oh, this is how this works. And I think that maybe some people don't have that realization of like, it's obvious, how could you not do something about it? Probably because they just don't understand that problem, those, those systems from top to bottom. Um, and it's really hard and you have to be really willing to tear the... Um, the bandaid off and expose yourself to things that will make you uncomfortable. So do you think that, that they don't understand that system because they haven't had that experience uh, of, like you said, when you transitioned and I recognize that a tiny bit in that uh, when I was like 21, I became aware of fat phobia up until that point, I just sort of hated myself. And then I gained social points by living up to that, you know, by making self-deprecating jokes or, you know, constantly being on a diet to prove that I was a good fatty. And, you know, it wasn't until I realized what was actually happening and what had happened to me my entire life that I, like, almost as you said, like it opened up all these other, like, oh, this is how the world works. So do you, can people reach that point without having to have that experience themselves? I think they can. Um, certainly the world requires it of us, right? Um, but it is harder, right? And I, I hope that they can because, you know, trans people are optimistically 1% of the population, right? And that's a, a fact that will never change, right? Um, we don't know what causes people to be trans. Um, what we do know is we can look at cultures all throughout the world who have varying different um, relationships with gender and sexuality, um, and consistently about, you know, half a percent to 2% of people are trans. Okay. If trans people are to have rights, we can't just wait for all trans folks to come to these realizations, right? Because we will never be in the majority under any circumstance, right? I mean, if trans people become the majority in the world, some awful calamity has befallen the world. And so I do hope that people who do not experience it firsthand um, can open themselves up. And yes, it's helpful if you have friends and you see the struggle or family and you see the struggle. Those things are important. But I think that we have to orient ourselves around an intention and a goal. And if your goal is equal rights for all, then it's very easy to look at a, a wide spectrum of opinions on how to get there. 
and what there looks like, right? And if people do this as a part of their normal, everyday self-improvement, um, then I think that we can get there. I don't, I, can, I will never be black, for example, right? I don't understand what it is like to be black. I definitely don't understand what it is like to be black in America, despite the fact that I own a house in what used to be a black neighborhood in America. Um, because I can never experience the world from their eyes. I've been called to slurs. I have a DM sitting in my Twitter inbox right now where somebody uses the N-word for me, right? I am not a dark-skinned person. Um, despite that, I can't experience that world. Doesn't the, the world doesn't require me to. I can look around and see at the injustice that is happening. I can do the readings. I can read the news. I can listen to, to black folks. I can listen to differing opinions from black folks. And I can form my own opinions and start to see how that connects with other things that I see in the world. And so I do, do think that like, you don't need to experience it firsthand. You don't even need to have people in your life who experience it firsthand. Um, you just have to be willing to, to understand that the world is not perfect. It is our responsibility as people to make it more perfect, as individuals to make it more perfect, and that we should do something about that now rather than later. So when did you start tracking Nazis? Who was the first one? I'm sorry, can you say again? Who was the first uh, Nazi you tracked and how did that come about? Oh, you know, I don't know who the first Nazi I tracked was. Um, I, you know, I tracked a lot of the Nazis who, um, who I knew but maybe the first Nazi that I exposed would be, yeah. You know, I, I don't even know who the first one was. And I wouldn't even know. I wouldn't even know who it was if you said the name. But what 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 happened in the? What made you do it? What because it's such a it's such a, a great idea that I just hadn't thought about that there was someone out there who should do this. You know. Um, I think there are a lot of things that, that led to it, but what really struck me about Char what happened in Charlottesville was um, the Nazis all came in. They did an incredible amount of violence. They committed an act of terrorism and somebody died. And most of them just went home and nothing happened. There was no justice. There was nothing. There was no accountability. During the event, the police stood there and did nothing. And so I think that for me, identifying Nazis was about recognizing that the state was never going to help us, that we were on our own. And if somebody was going to hold them accountable and they had to be held accountable, it was going to have to be the people. And so who better to do it than me if nobody else else was going to do it so i i did it i started looking at the resources that were out there the leaked chat logs and the videos and um everything like that and i uh i started putting together identities and with that i was able to identify people who had done things that were wrong um and put names to faces and to actions and I think that's important work because what 
we realize in the process of this is that Nazis are not people, you know, some of them are maybe, um, but for the most part, they are not people who live in some compound, you know, in the South somewhere and, you know, shave their heads and, and, you know, stomp around in Doc Martens and, and throw, you know, uh, Hitler salutes or anything. Nazis were normal people with everyday jobs. They weren't all poor as the um, common trope of white supremacists goes. Many of them were upper middle class, wealthy, um, good education, college educated. And to me, that was like, okay, this needs to be part of the discourse because we need to, to show that it's not about poverty. It's not about, you know, economic anxiety or whatever. It's not about um, region. It's not about anything else. It's about a pure, unfiltered hate. And that hate permeates our society. That hate is teaching in our schools. That hate is serving in our military, in our police departments. That hate is the shopkeep who runs the store that you like to go to. It's the guy that's pushing papers at the DMV or at the, the local bank. You know, it's everywhere. And that makes it, I think when you realize that it's everywhere, it makes it a lot harder for you to compartmentalize away from those things. It makes it harder for you to believe that white supremacy is an over there problem. And it really brings it home. Um, and I think that's been important work that I'm proud to be doing. And, you know, I'm not the only person um, doing it. A lot of people are, are doing this work. And so I think, uh, I think it's the most important work I've ever done in my life. So what happens when they're outed? Do they, is that, so you, you put out the information and then it's just out there. Then what happens? Do they lose their jobs? Uh, were they all secret Nazis and their families and bosses and stuff didn't know? Or in many the consequences? Cases, yeah. yeah. In many cases, yeah. In, in many cases, um, families knew, found out, jobs knew, you know, employers found out, lots of people were fired. Um, some of them, I, the, some of the people I exposed um, have been arrested. Some of them were thrown out of the military. Um, I exposed one dude a week before his wedding and his dad called me, um, fairly upset after that. Um, it's like, sorry, dude, I didn't make your kid a Nazi. Don't blame me. Um, some of them have apologized. Some of them have recanted. Um, some of them have admitted to, um, being in the wrong and that's good. We want, we want those people to, to leave these movements. Um, so it varies, but I think, you know, what you do is you boil down the people who are, who want to be in this movement safely, um, which has two effects, one positive and one negative. The positive effect is that it shrinks that movement, reduces their numbers and makes it much harder for them to recruit and grow. The downside is that the people who stay are the diehards. They're much harder to get out. They're much more likely to be violent. Therefore, the average violence in the group tends to go upwards. So this strategy needs to be met with other competing strategies. You can't just say, okay, we're going to expose all the Nazis and it's fine. There's other strategies to stopping Nazis that need to be done in conjunction with this. Um, and so this is one part of a multifaceted fight. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I think that that's, that's really it. I'm going to make a, like a comparison that might not, it might be, it might be absolute shit, but so we're talking about sort of the, the realization that you had after you transitioned, which was that, Oh sh shit. Now I can feel this on my own body that the world is against, uh, like what it feels like when someone is discriminated against. Is there a, is there a comparison to make about what these Nazis who felt safe and then they realized that there were consequences and then they realized they were wrong. Is there something in that of having your eyes opened and realizing, do you know what I'm trying to get at? It might be, absolute, do you know what I mean? I think it's a little bit different. I mean, in some cases, yes, there are people who, um, came to those realizations and have done a lot of important and very good work in um, beating back hate in their lives. And, and there are processes for de-radicalizing. Um, but I think it's a little bit of a different thing, right? The I'm not going to be part of this movement because I don't want to get caught is a different type of realization than mm. um, I need to be part of this liberation movement because mm. I'm now attuned to injustices that are in the world. Mm. Those are two different things. Of course. I was I was just hoping that when the consequences, maybe that's too optimistic. I was just hoping that when they had consequences, that made them realize that they had been wrong and they didn't want to be part of the group because they now wanted to do good. But the, that's probably... Yeah, I, I don't have a lot of evidence of that. No. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I was suddenly being super optimistic about that. Um, what, were you in... I found this, I think, on your website where you portrayed an American horror story. Yeah. What's that? I, I was, well, I, I, how did that? I've only seen the, I haven't seen this season, but what happened? How? The last episode, I think, of American Horror Story Cult. Um, they ripped off one of my live streams. I mean, they like reproduced it um, in the style of the show and they turned me into a black woman, um, which I'm honored by because I think that black women are. Um, some of the most important contributors to our society. Um, but yeah, I had a live stream going on the night of August 11th when the Tiki Torch rally was happening. And there was a very dramatic moment during that live stream when I was like kind of crying into the camera. Um, and they like literally reproduced that. And I mean, they they used my exact words at one point. Um, and so that, and they didn't tell me about it. They didn't reach out. Um, I didn't get paid for it. So, but that's my claim to fame. That's so strange. So you just found out because you were randomly watching American Horror Story and then... No, I didn't find out. This is actually a horrifying story because I don't watch American Horror Story. Um, my wife does. And my wife was watching my live stream that night. So she was sitting at home watching me out there get surrounded by torch-bearing Nazis and then get beaten. And so she's watching in horror as my feed goes dead. And it's like the end of the live stream is a very dramatic ending. And so this is like a few months later, she's just like trying to relax and unwind and, and plow through like at then I at that point it was like the most recent season of, of AHS. And so she's like watching it and she like comes out of her room and she's like ghastly in the face. And she's like, so they, they put, they turned you into a character. Like she was livid, um, especially finding out about this. She's like, that's my wife. Like, what the fuck? 
It's so strange. What? Um, oh, okay, I'm gonna. Oh, I had the million questions to ask you. Uh, oh, tell me about first vigil. No, Virgil. No, vigil. Right, vigil. Mm-hmm. As in vigilante. Is as that in, where that stems a, from? As in a watch. As in. Oh, vigil. Yes, I'm gonna do the second language card here. Uh, tell me about first vigil. So first vigil is a project that started in October of 2018. In October of 2018 was a very dramatic month for a lot of reasons. Um, in the US, there were a number of incidents pertaining to white supremacy. Um, there was the uh, the Proud Boys, which is sort of a, a far right, not quite white supremacist, but also not, not white supremacist uh, gang in the US. Um, and they were involved in some like riotous street violence in Manhattan where they were on video beating the shit out of a protester. Um, and so they got all, you know, like the people in New York who, who track Nazis there, like immediately doxed all of them. And then they like face charges. Now two of them are still in jail or in prison rather. Um, so that happened. And then a shooting in Kentucky happened um, where a white man shot two black people in a, in a supermarket. And then the Caesar Sayoc incident happened where a Trump supporter was mailing pipe bombs to journalists and newsrooms and Congress people all over the US. And then the worst happened, which was the Pittsburgh Tree of Life incident where um, a man, neo-Nazi, uh, a well-known neo-Nazi walked into a synagogue and killed 11 people um, during services. And so all of these things happened at the same time, or within within the span of about two weeks. There was also another piece of news that happened at that same time. And that was a neo-Nazi was sentenced for a terror attack. And this went under the, flew under the radar. Um, it, it didn't get a lot of uh, attention because it wasn't a successful terror attack. He tried to derail a train and failed. But in the documents, it revealed the that he was in Charlottesville and I'd seen the story months before and I kind of forgot about it. But when all this was going on, I was like, let me, you know, there's some details in here. And they had like this really shitty mugshot. And I'm like, you know, there's probably enough details in here for me to find him. So let me see what I can do. So I go in and I start looking through my archive of materials. And I find him almost right away. And my jaw hits the floor. I mean, this was one of those things where like, if you were talking to me or if I was like, if we were in conversation and I discovered this, I would have stopped silent so abruptly that you might've thought that I had an aneurysm. Because when I found him, he was marching in formation with James Fields. James Fields was the man who drove his car into the crowd in Charlottesville. So here's a guy who was convicted and sentenced for a terror attack, marching in formation with another guy who at the time was still on trial for a terror attack. And so now you start saying like, oh, these, you know, oh, this is a lone wolf attack. I'm sorry, but you know what you call two wolves next to each other? A pack. And at that moment, I realized that we needed better tools to keep track of all of this. So I built one and that's where it started. And as I started going through this and and expanding my scope and my horizons, I started learning and reading 
all about these things and discovering so much and realizing that there's a wealth of information sitting in plain sight and there's stories to be told. There's movements that can be created from it. There's a million things um, just sitting there waiting for us to discover. If only we know how to look and listen and read. So First Vigil is a project about that. Um, so I started that and I'm still maintaining it and it's hard to keep up, especially with the George Floyd protests because there have been so many instances of hate crimes and violence. Um, but there's been so much that has come out of it, um, out of that project that I, th I think it's some of the most important work to do. If I could, if I could get paid to do it, I would mm. get paid to do it. Amazing. This is going to be a weird question, but is that it's just because I saw that you've sometimes uh, tweeted with uh, Robert Evans, who's the host of the Behind the Basses podcast. So is there a network of like Nazi, new Nazi? I want to say new Nazi hunters. Maybe that's a bit too dramatic. There is. Yeah. There is sharing um, information and. I mean, it's not nearly as formal as you think. I mean, there's a bunch of journalists and a bunch of researchers, right? And the community is very small. So we all know each other and from time to time sh share information and resources. Um, there's no formal network of, of anything like that. Um, and most of us do our own thing. Um, but I think that the more important and the more valuable thing is that we're all there to support each other because this is some really dark work. And this is the type of stuff that really beats you down. And you have to be able to step away. You have to be able to find the mental health support. You have to be able to have, to pass on the torch to somebody else. And it's just so important to be, to do those things that um, I think that the network exists less to track Nazis and more to just support each other and keep each other on the right track. And I'm proud that, you know, I get to be a small part of it in whatever way that I get to be a part of it. Yeah, because that's what I was thinking. The few times I've been under huge attacks by, like, trolls led by Milo Yiannopoulos and all those pricks, um, it weirdly helped to read Zoe Quinn's book, uh, Crash Override, about their experiences with trolling, even though the story is horrible as well. There's something in knowing that other people are going through that horrible thing, right? There is, there is. It's, um, I think it is uh, affirming and validating um, to know that you're not alone, to know that it is difficult and that the things that you're experiencing are real and valid and it, that it is a struggle. Um, as with anything else, I mean, without a support network, we're nothing, right? We're only as good as the people who, who lift us up and who protect us when we are vulnerable. Um, and so I think that to me is the most important part of this work. I mean, you know, anti-fascism and anarchism are, are two closely related philosophies and anarchism is all about mutual aid. And what is more in the spirit of mutual, mutual aid than uplifting the people who um, protect you and uh, protecting them when, when your time comes. I mean, that's what it's all about. So are you, 
Are you? I wanted to ask if you were scared, but I think I'd rather ask you how your relationship with fear, because you seem and you come across as fearless, and that also seems like that seems unreal because no one's fearless. But how, what's your relationship with fear? I think to me, it's not that there's no fear. It's that the fear is secondary to the purpose. Um, there's nothing wrong with fear. There's nothing wrong with being afraid. This is a thing that is very scary. It is very scary when federal troops are out there shooting at protesters. Nothing about that is safe. Nothing about that is okay. You should be afraid of that. If you're not afraid of it, you're probably on the bad guy's side. But to me, that takes a backseat to purpose. When my purpose is clear, fear cannot dissuade me or deter me or distract me. Um, I think that there is a confidence in when you know that you're doing the right thing, no matter what happens, it's happened because you were doing the right thing. And if I died in that car attack, or if I was beaten in that by that mob, even worse, or you know, if the federal government tries to crack down on me for some bullshit or whatever, right? I would much rather that happen knowing that I was doing the right thing. Um, for me, that is above all else, the most important thing. You know, I can protect myself. I can, you know, I'm resourceful, I'm, I'm crafty. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, my time won't come, but it, I'm just not like, it's not that I'm not afraid. It's just that I'm doing what, what I was, you know, meant to do. So what do we need to do? What, what do, what can we do the, the most sort of, well, so I, I've, I spoke to, uh, I believe it was Vidya Ramalinga. I don't know if you know her. She um, she would go to white supremacist uh, rallies in Sweden and try and talk to them and try and figure out how to get them out of the of their Nazi community and uh, she's created a, an online system where uh, they send out ads on white supremacists pages that encourage them to get help and get out of them. And she's incredible. And speaking to her really made me realize that my whole sort of a, a public approach which is very much fuck the Nazi, fuck the Nazis could sometimes be damaging in that that would only make some of the ones that could be saved that that would only make them feel more attacked and then that would make it worse I mean both things can be true at the same time right and it's different for everybody um, there's a degree in empathy that has to be had for all people Um, but ultimately the Nazis have to want to leave the movement. Um, as with anything else, the first step starts with you. Um, and de-radicalization programs are not entirely different from, um, say, substance abuse rehab programs. Um, I think that, you know, making the social cost for entering Nazism very high is, ne is as necessary as being compassionate to the Nazis who leave the movement. Um, I consider several people friends who were Nazis who left the movement and are doing the work to put that behind them now. 
And this includes people who were in Charlottesville. Um, so it is necessary to do that. But the thing is that we have to understand scales. And de-radicalization is something that takes a lot of people for one person. You know, it, it takes a ton of people to support one person leaving a movement. And it's hard to scale that. And so it needs to be targeted. Um, there are very successful organizations at this, but there are success cases number in the hundreds over the past couple of years. The problem that we're seeing is in the thousands to ten thousands. And so when we are looking at a time when we have a deeply polarized society, when the government is operating with impunity and enabling white supremacists to attack people, it is equally or more important to uh, stem that flow of hatred than it is to rescue people coming out of those movements. Um, the situation is frankly too dire to commit all of our resources to that. Um, moreover, sometimes what a Nazi needs to have the catalyst for leaving the movement is that punch in the face. I know of a couple of cases where Nazis went out, got clocked in the face and decided, eh, you know what, this isn't the movement for me. And that works too. So you're saying do punch Nazis. You know, the federal government listens to a lot of what I say. Okay, do not punch. <laughs> and I'm not going to take a stance one way or the other on whether one should punch, punch a Nazi. No one's saying anything. But I will say <laughs> that sometimes violence can be an effective deterrent for further violence. And that punching somebody in the face is much safer and much more reasonable than, say, driving a car into them. And if it were coming down to me and my choices, and my choices were send somebody to prison for 40 years, kill them, or clock them real good in the face, I'm going to clock them real good in the face. That said, it's all situational, and I've never punched a Nazi in the face. I have, I did say at the beginning of this podcast that I am a hockey player, and I'll say that on the rink or on the ice, Punching is sometimes a really good way to solve problems. Usually you get it out of your system, you shake hands, and you're good. And you were taught all of this by your That's grandmother. Not... I'm sorry? And you were taught to all of this by your grandmother. I was, taught, I was taught to punch by my grandmother, who taught me to, to punch bullies in the face, right? She used to tell me, punch them right in the nose. And, you know, let's not get punching a Nazi in the face confused with um, Al-Qaeda, you know, driving a, a vehicle-borne IED into a school, all right? Like, punching a Nazi in the face is not the same level of political violence as, you know, um, a truck bomb, right? Or, or a drone strike, let's just be clear. Um, punching a Nazi in the face is, in, is an interpersonal way of solving problems at a very small scale. And so I'm not going to condone it and I'm not going to condemn it. Like, I'm if you would say, oh, we should shoot all the Nazis, I'd be like, you know what? Don't actually go shoot all the Nazis. It's not worth it. You don't want to be a murderer. It's not good for the movement. But come on, like dumping a glass of water on somebody, 
It's hilarious. Throwing a milkshake at somebody, it's hilarious. <laughs> we should be so lucky if our problems in society can be solved by some airborne dairy products. I usually have to choose between things that the guest has said and then choose a title from that. And there's about 400 good ones from everything you've said. Um, I, and I want to, I want to hear everything you have to say forever. So, uh, but we don't have forever because you have a, a life and I should also be having one. So, where can people thank you so much for doing this by the way this has been one of the messiest things to set up because i have been useless but thank you for doing it and where can people find you and your stuff and how can we support you and plug away i am uh, at emily gorsensky on twitter uh, that's the easiest way to find my normal day-to-day bullshit um but my projects are first vigil um first-vigil.com i also have two other sites that are a little bit different in nature Um, one is called When They Came Down, all one word, whentheycamedown.com. It's um, tracking some of the statues that have been toppled by protesters and other means um, in response to the George Floyd protests and other um, events. And howhatesleeps.com, which is a look into neo-Nazi living spaces. Um, some of the neo-Nazis that have been arrested and, and tried with crimes and convicted, uh, many of their court documents include photographs of their living spaces. And I think it's a, a little bit of an interesting peek into the uh, array of ways in which some of these um, very violent people go about their daily lives. Um, so I do hope that you look those sites up at some point and otherwise just follow me on Twitter. And uh, I'm sorry for my constant incessant babbling. No, do you, you have nothing to apologize for. This has been amazing. Thank you so, so, so much for doing this. Well, thank you for having me. And I really appreciate uh, you making the time to have me on. Of course, always, anytime. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that because I sure did. A few things I need to say. First of all, you're right. I did not ask her the baby question. And that is because, well, first of all, we didn't have all the time in the world, which is absolutely fair because I'd already been <laughs> been messing her about for a while. So she only had an hour and I was like, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> I totally get it. But also I, it didn't feel, it didn't feel relevant in a way because we hadn't really talked about like her childhood and her past. We talked just a lot about systems and, and Nazis. So it didn't really feel like a, Like a suitable question, basically. And for the same reason, the time reason, and um, well, also for that reason, uh, I didn't do the extra bit with her, so you're not going to get that on Saturday. Um, uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, yes. What I love and what really just... I don't know, it just really made me happy was when she... When I mentioned what Vidya Ramalingam had said in her episode, where she was also, uh, you know, working with or against Nazis, and how they these two people had these complete opposite, not opposite opinions. They w would probably both agree with each other to some extent, but it's like two different views on this entire Nazi problem. And I just love that both those. I I love complexity and nuance and all of those things and the fact that we can have 
two Nazi hunter guests <laughs> saying these things. I don't know. I'm just really excited about it. It's it's a dream come true. Also, she was in American Horror Story. That is so strange. <laughs> that is so strange. I'm going to have to watch that entire series. I'm not a big fan, I think, but I really do want to see that. I'm also super excited about Emily's um, the website. Websites? Why can't I say websites? That she mentioned at the end. I'm very excited about those as well. Anyways, please go and um, follow follow Emily Gosensky on social media and thank her. Thank you for doing the the podcast. Thank you for being so patient with me <laughs> and for giving us all that. I mean, I I just I think that was such a valuable conversation. I'm sorry, I just really think so. Now, uh, speaking of valuable, oh, I'm so cute. I am going to thank the people who are patrons. So I'm always grateful for the way you support the podcast, be it through sharing it or giving it a five-star review or uh, telling your friends about it or giving one-off donations or the people who are patrons. You can find all the information about all of these things on madeofhumanpodcast.com, but uh, you can also go to patreon.com forward slash Mopod, M-O-H-P-O-D, not Molepod, as someone said they thought it was. And uh, there you can give a certain amount of dollars per episode. And then at the end of the month, uh, the total will be deducted. So since it comes out every Wednesday, it can only ever be a maximum of five episodes a month. Usually it's three. Rare occasions it's... Uh, no, usually it's four. Rare, rare occasions it's three. Uh, so if you give uh, $5 per episode, you will give around $20. And I, it's all in dollars. That doesn't mean it's not... I mean, I'm in the UK. The dollars thing is quite annoying. But uh, go to like a currency thingy and I think the dollar is... A, I think the pound is a bit lower than a dollar. If that, I don't know. Google it. It's around the same-ish. Anyways, I am not a financial genius. I'm only a genius in many other ways. Now, if you give $5 or more per episode, you become one of the cool kids, one of the real cool kids who get their names read out loud at the end of the episode, who gets me to butcher their name at the end of the episode. And at the time of recording, these are the people who have been kind and generous and wonderful enough to do that. So I want to say a massive Massive thank you to Andrea Papillon, Andrew January, Andy Walker, Anya Knoblauch, Anne-Marie Hepburn, Aretha, Alton Blue Sky, Bamboo Bandit, Barry Knowlton, Beth Payton, Bethany Dahlstrom, Caitlin Catposay, Cherry Winter, Christine with a Y, Claire Fletcher, Dan Rushton, Danny Beckett, Danny Rafferty, Danielle Johnson, Dieter Ponber, Jensen, E. L., Emily Bindi, Emma, Emma Perangi, Felicitations, Vanilla Don Privacy, Soros Aurora Teratops, Galway Cass, Georgia, Gillian Davidson, Grace Ann, Hannah Paul Smith, Hannah Rose Tristram, Harold Van Dyke, Harry Minot, Helen Jarena, Helen Jermack, Hee Hee, Holly Ritchie, Isabel Johnston, Jen Boyle, Jenny Kratz, DOC, Catherine Norton, Kathleen Goodmanson, Catherine Williams, Kathy, 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 Axel Bauer, Katie Hatfield, Katrina de Pillarsen, Kirsten Kirsten E., Kirsten Davison, Chrissy Nicholson, Laura Ingman, Lily and Harry French, Hunkered in the Bunker, Lindsay Boschniak, Lily, no, Lola Phoenix, M. Dash, Maeve Houlihan, Maury Fraser, Megan Roberts, Paul Swell, Perpetual Motion, Phil Scordis, Pierre Fenneux, 
Rachel Ray, England, Rachel Fairley, Rachel Phillips, Ragdoll, Rianne Rivers, Robert Knowles, Robin Cabba, Rowan Pierce, Samantha Jolie, Sarah Ellett, Sarah Pluma, Simon James, Sophia Ramsey, Susie Tyler, Victoria Greer, Victoria Layton, and Zoe Stephenson. Did I do that quicker than I usually do? I, f- I felt quite, um, I felt, it was almost like I was rapping your names. <laughs> no, it was not. Don't say that. I am not cool enough to even say that. Okay. You are so wonderful. Oh, thank you for keeping me going. At the time of recording this, I have been on lockdown for 126 days. It's a lot. It's a lot. It is a lot. (laughs) So go and check out my website. Go and thank Emily Gosensky for being an amazing guest. Go sign up for Patreon. Go live your life. Have a great time. (laughs) Be happy. All those things. Nah, no pressure. You don't have to be happy. I know my audience. Now, massive thank you to you for listening. Thank you to Emily for being an amazing guest. Thank you to Dave Pickering for editing this episode, to Harriet Brain for writing and recording the jingle, and to Justine McNichol for the logo. This podcast was produced by me, by my company, Dying Alone Limited. I will speak to you next week. Bye. Mm-hmm.